This is Malia Hoffman. I'm here with Fred Ramirez, and you're listening to the Carrera Podcast. Today, our guest today our guest is Sharon Lakovich Valente, PhD. She is an assistant director of curriculum and assessment and evaluation within the Masters of Physician Assistant Studies program at Herbert Wortham College of Medicine at Florida International University. She has taught across multiple disciplines and has extensive experience in assessment along with her background in quantitative and qualitative research projects in assessment and accreditation. But her most important title is as a mother to Peter and Kevin, both of whom were adopted from Russia. Being a native Clevelander and football fan, you know what it means to endure hardship. How was life growing up in Cleveland and attending parochial schools? Did you have an affinity in high school for what you are doing today? Uh, several questions in that question. Let me start with the hardship and sports. Um, my father especially was a big time Cleveland sports fan. I still have his eight millimeter film of the 1948 first game of the world series. Oh man. Um, one of my proudest moments when you consider everything I've done in life, I bought tickets from my sister who had a, a newspaper route and I took my dad to a Cleveland Browns game at the old stadium. And that's, that's what the Browns were like to me. I mean, the Jim Brown, the Bernie Kozars, um, you know, it was it a hardship to watch them. Yes. <laughs> but, but, but at that age, I didn't see it. The Cavaliers, the team that used to be the Indians. I, it was, but it was a way. In fact, I, my husband and I didn't meet in an Indians game. We One of our very first dates was the opening. Um, I, I think they now call it Progressive Field, I think. Um, parochial schools, all my siblings, my cousins, that, that was what was done way back when. Um, so I didn't know any different. And it was, it was like I was living in a fairy tale land. And I don't, I don't mean to romanticize it. It was just, that was the world I lived in. Um, the t <laughs> compared to where I live now, um, you know, you walked to school and you told stories and there was the neighborhood library and it was a parish, um, the school, I understand, has moved several times, but I didn't know any. That's what we did. Um, and what was the last part of the question? Did you have an affinity in high school for what you are doing today? I had an affinity to grow my career. I went to an all-girls Catholic high school, and that's one of the main reasons I felt empowered I felt supported to, to do more than, quite frankly, in my day, find the MRS degree. Um, 
it just, it wasn't just the teachers. It was my friends, my classmates that are still my friends and classmates to this day. Um, One day uh, when I was at the university, I was at in California, Marymount California University. I was on my way to class and I don't remember why I was not happy with my students. I don't think they'd done the homework or the reading or whatever. So I wasn't exactly in a good mood and I'm debating how to handle it. Have my cell phone and I get a call from Beaumont. I'm also the class, I'm in California, but I'm the class rep for a Catholic girls high school in Cleveland, Ohio. Hmm. And I get a call. I said, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll call back. I said, no, I think it'd probably be better for the students if I took this call. It turns out this was maybe October 2015, I think. Um, Friends had gotten together. People that maybe I've talked to through social media every so often, and they nominated me for alumni of the year. And this woman was calling to tell me your name came up and it was unanimous. Um, and it was, and then, then I get the backstory of how somebody remembered, oh yeah, her sister's on here, let's contact her, and how they did everything without my finding out, which is, I mean, there's the friend in Philadelphia, the friend in Cleveland, the f- friend in San Francisco, the friend in Bloomington, Indiana, hmm. um, and how they all coordinated, and among they talked about how I supported everyone and look at my career. Well, all that came about because of them. Uh, I was able to fly back. The ceremony was like the first week after Thanksgiving that year. Um, Was able to see uh, two of my siblings were in Cleveland at the time. Was able to see some, we got together. The one friend hosted a dinner I mean, it was a spaghetti dinner. It was very plain, but we stayed up talking. I think I maybe got an hour of sleep before I had to head to the airport. Hmm. So when it comes to, did I have an affinity for what I do now? If you look at the technical side of what I do now, yes, I was good at math. I was good at statistics. But the affinity for being a colleague to people you didn't want to be a colleague (laughs) with, um, to helping those that, you know, usually when I bring up, I teach statistics, people do this, um, and helping them. So do I have an affinity for what I do now? The seeds, the seeds were born way back when. Can you explain a little bit about what you're doing at, at Florida International right now? Um, I have this wonderfully long title. I'm an associate professor, let's see if I remember it, assistant director of curriculum assessment and evaluation in the physician assistant program in the College of Medicine at Florida International University. In the simple one sentence answer, what I do now, I look at what, how students perform, do they perform at the level we want them performing Um, and the skills we want them learning. What I do, uh, a large part of what I do is capture all the data from student evaluations to grades to their scoring on rotations. 
um, and analyzing that compared to, this is good practice, I have to do this tomorrow, um, compare that to uh, their scores on their board exam, which is called a pants. And is there a correlation uh, for one statistic that no one should be surprised about? There's a very strong correlation, a strong relationship between their undergraduate science GPA and how they perform on the pants. Makes sense. So I'm the data person. I help with surveys. I also right now am advising three capstone students, which is um, maybe a more common terminology, a master's thesis. Um, when I interviewed for this job, uh, it was interesting because I said, you know, I know the assessment world. I know the accreditation world. Medical world, I know from a personal standpoint. I don't know from a teaching knowledge standpoint. And they were okay with that. Do I still know it? Well, I finally think I know, although I have a chart in front of my desk, the curriculum and anatomy and cardiology and nephrology and so on and so on. Um, do I know what is part of it? I know the learning outcomes, which is the basic building block that I look at. So uh, I do the analysis and I would say in a form, the particular decision maker needs to make decisions. If it's a faculty member, they want the raw data. If it's the program director, they wanna see not spitting off a bunch of statistics, um, but take those statistics and say what it means. What is statistical significance and why is that important? What is practical significance and why is that important? Yeah, I and I love that. So how do you as an educator, like, can you share with us how you blend the, you know, your research into your everyday work? One of um, one of my capstone students um, is working on um, looking at the efficacy of a particular medicine that helps uh, patients with autism and sleep issues. And she and I got into a great conversation. My youngest son is on the spectrum. So yeah, there's certain things we have to do in this paper and the end is approaching and deadlines are deadlines, but talking to her about, yes, I need you to cite the research. What does this mean? What does this mean for the patients? What does this mean? What future research would you like to see? And one of one of her points is um, it's been approved in the UK. It's not approved in the US, this particular medicine she's recommending. Well, so what do we need to do? How do we? So yes, um, and I can think that parochial school experience for the grammar and the English, but it's the meaning. What does it mean? And that's that's what I hope I bring to my work. Yeah, I think that's a really important um, point that you're making, because when you said like when most people, when they hear that you do statistics or that you're, you know, into math, they just kind of like glaze their eyes, glaze over and they're like, nah. Mm -hmm. But it's so important when it comes to understanding what is the meaning, what why, right? The why, why are we, why are we trying to get statistics? Why are we trying to get research? Mm -hmm. Well, 
we were trying to understand it so we can apply it to our life and to, um, you know, to whatever it is that you're, you're searching to find the answer to. So, um, yeah, it's, I mean, I think that's the, the piece that's missing from people. Like they just get stuck at, at go. Right. <laughs> so, um, very or, or the, the, Oh, I hated statistics mm-hmm. or, um, it, actually one person I work with in another department at FIU, so, uh, I just did not do well. I said, well, that's because you didn't have me in class. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one of the things I, I am supposed to teach, which is interesting in a college of medicine in my background, but they've needed me too much to do what I do. So really the teaching I've had is these capstone students. But uh, back when I taught uh, statistics, the final was creative oral presentation. And if students hadn't talked about me or to my prior students, they'd get that syllabus and it's like, wait a minute, oral presentation, creative oral presentation in statistics. My premise is I'm going to have you understanding the number crunching and what it means. I want you to take it, speaking to fellow educators, to the next balloon level. Can you explain it? Because if you can explain it, you really get it. And not in a typical classroom presentation. Um, My favorite, when you take it out of that environment, they invest more in it. Someday I'm going to test this. But my absolute favorite one, um, and coming from California, you will appreciate this, was a group got together, and they have to run topics by me and so on. Suppose you had to re-sign Chris Ball and Blake Griffin to the Clippers, and you're arguing from the standpoint of ownership, and you're arguing from the standpoint of his agent. They put much more into it than they would have a final exam, and they retain it longer. Mm-hmm. That one. I've lost the video. I was just looking for it the other day. Um, I was laughing so hard, as was most of the class. I was crying, Hmm. but they get it. And that's when I teach, you know, to get students who hate statistics to that point. That's like nerd nirvana Hmm. in a teaching world. So, um, yeah. And connecting it to sports, I feel like that's an accessible um, touch point for all people, right? Like, kids are so obsessed with sports and they want to be, you know, a pro athlete or they want to, you know, work in, right. in sports news or whatever. But if you can connect to them at a young age, and I know you're, you know, you get them later, but if you can connect to them at a young age and have them see the significance of statistics and how it connects to those things that they are super interested in, like your basketball reference, um, that's, that's how you get the draw. That's how you get them, you know, dialed in. It's making it fun. Mm-hmm. You know, it's finding those exactly. And now it's exactly. fun to learn about it. It's mm-hmm. not so much having to learn about it. They want to, mm-hmm. you know. Exactly. 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 Uh, you, you shared that you, in your bio, that you um, adopted some children from Russia. And then you mentioned that one of your children are on the spectrum can you share that experience about when you first thought about adoption and then um, what that process was like, you know, from when you picked up your, your children? Um, I'm, I'm going to focus on son number two, because it's, to be honest, a funner. They're both wonderful, but um, it's a funner <laughs> story. So um, we uh, were with a group that prepared um, couples that were getting engaged at our church back in Ohio. And you have these little meetings to go over, okay, what are you going to say? And so on. And the group 
uh, two th- spring 2003, really wanted us to talk about why Peter. Peter is our older son. Why did we adopt Peter? And what was that story about? Given I was from Ohio, my husband was from Indiana, and all the family factors and all that. And that really caused us to look at where we were in life and and all our decisions. Um, I was at a small college. I was teaching at a small college in Ohio at that time. And after graduation, we drove down to Florida when my father was still alive. Um, my father had Lewy body dementia, which is the same disease Robin Williams had. And I can't explain it. But my father with dementia was still all about family and still motivated us. So we got home and I contacted the agency, which happened to be based in a suburb right next to where we lived and talked. And I don't remember if it was that meeting or second meeting. He said, would you consider a child uh, with cleft? I, I remember saying, it's fixable, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so that was May, June, 2003. Um, you may or may not remember there was a huge blackout in August, 2003. And uh, right before the blackout hit where we were, I got a call that they wanted us. I'm jumping straight. Let me back to May, June. We get the referral. I just had a picture. My husband saw the picture of Peter and said, yes, that's our son. We saw the picture. I saw the picture of Kevin. And and you just know. Uh, We were on a family vacation in July. And I get a call from the agency. I've got a video you need to see. And here was a video of Kevin with his smile that he has to this day. Okay. So we're going about making the arrangements. Right before the blackout hits, we get the message that the authorities in Russia where he was had called and they wanted us there. It was like right after Labor Day and mid-October. Now, Remember what I do for a living? I'm a college professor. Mm -hmm. I'm getting this call in August. Fortunately, um, I had spoken to my chair and my dean, so they knew. I really thought we'd be traveling Thanksgiving, Christmas. So uh, problem number one was Peter. Peter was pre-K. I found someone to stay with him. Family would have come, but I was already upsetting the apple cart. So somebody who was going to her first year of kindergarten teaching, moved into the house while we went to Russia. Over the Atlantic, I remember crying, I miss my Peter. Yeah, like the plane's going to turn around. (laughs) Um, And then they take us um, to where Kevin was, and it just, they're watching you to see what their first reaction is. And clearly, um, Kevin had not been in this playroom before, but he just, just, I I can't explain it. We knew he was our son. So then you got to sign the paperwork. But then at that time, you had to leave him and come home to the States. Oh, yeah. So the reaction I had with Peter going 
I now have the reaction with Kevin, but I know I'm coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, again, fortunately, the people I worked with, we worked through things. I'm not sure students were ultra thrilled, but we made it through. Um, in fact, Kevin's got, we celebrate gotcha day, which is a controversial term in the adoption world. Gotcha day is the day your adoption is final. And in our family, that's, that's the day we got each other. Kevin's 19th gotcha day is October 3rd and we treat it like a birthday. And he's already telling me, I've got my gotcha day list, mom. And it's like, okay, fine. Um, but it's, it's a day to celebrate. We got home and uh, it's a little more than a week later is his brother's birthday. So we did a big family party and among the memories of that party, it was introduce Kevin, have a birthday party for Peter. Uh, my uncle, my father had passed away at that point. Was to, yeah, no, dad was alive, but he wasn't with us. My Uncle Pete, um, just my father's brother, um, just he and Kevin had the best time. Um, then, okay, so remember, I'm a college professor. We found an in-home daycare literally right down the street from us. She only had room till December, which was great. I was taking off spring semester. Um, we started weekly occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech therapy. Surgery number one with us was right after his second birthday. And um, just last week. So how many surgeries has he had? I couldn't tell you. He's probably facing surgeries throughout his life. We, we do. I'm waiting to hear from the doctors. We probably have a big one in December um, where they take, it's a bone graft, where they take bone from the hip and fuse it into the palate. And he's a trooper. He'll tell you, well, I like this kind of anesthesia. I mean, it's a good thing, but it's it's sad in a way. Um, But, uh, and again, the people I work with have been very understanding of, um, Another thing about FIU, when I was offered this position, um, I think one of the reasons I got the offer, I did my homework on FIU, and they have a program called FIU Embrace, which is very easy to find. It's legal, medical, academic, independent living. Um, Yes, there are programs throughout the country, but it might be just one aspect, a program that puts it all together. Um, to hear him say, I go to college, I go to FIU, is because it very much had been inferred to him that was not going to be a possibility for him. And yet he's doing it, and he's doing very well. One more Kevin story, I promise. Shut up about it. Um, (laughs) Hey, we asked. Yeah. (laughs) Our program, he takes two regular classes each semester. So in the spring... One of the classes was public speaking. And being the good helicopter mother I am, I said, so talk to me about this. This is part of the program. Okay. I really was hands-off. He has an academic mentor, a faculty mentor. Everything seemed to be going fine. So the last speech, and I hope I get it right, I believe was a persuasive speech. 
And he chose the topic of autism. Now, mind you, Kevin talking because of his cleft, um, sometimes it's not the easiest to understand what he's saying. It's a regular undergraduate class at FIU. He got 200 out of 200. So it's... That's awesome. It, and he did it. I had not, I didn't even know till after the fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's doing really, really well. And that's, as a mother, all, all you really want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. So what would you share with people who are thinking about adoption? What led you to adoption or what would you share with them to possibly adopt? You're going to get a lot of advice. Um, Use a filter of why you want to adopt. Hold on to that. Ask the questions. There's so many groups out there, pro and con. Um, Find a group that... I'm not saying they're yes people, but they're answering your questions honestly as to the realities of adoption, the um, the issues that can arise. Uh, there's a lot of support, courtesy of social media, there's so many support groups out there. Um, and I have come to know friends, shall we say, across the spectrum as far as adoption was, you know, my student my son, my daughter is a star, whatever, to the other end. Um, It's not a cakewalk. On the other hand, to be honest, biological children aren't always a cakewalk. But follow your heart. Um, If it weren't for adoption, we would not have had a family. And, And we had that, my husband and I had that conversation of, where we meant to spoil our nieces and nephews. And through actually a former student, you know, there's an adoption agency, a suburb over from where you live in Cleveland. And we we went to their open house. Um, In Cleveland, there's a a town, or excuse me, in Ohio, there's a town called Twinsburg. And they have Twins Days in July, August. And the workshop was at, a hotel in Twinsburg, which was a little scary. Um, So we went and then we decided we're going to go to dinner at the hotel that night. And to be honest, we sat down and um, the waitress comes up and says, I want a drink. I want it now. I said, you know, I don't know if I can do this. Um, and then we laid out our questions. I met with the agency and you took it step by step by step. And like I said, they gave us a referral of two to three people for Peter. And my husband said right away, it was, it was Peter. This was him as a baby. He found a baby picture of himself and that was him. But that was our experience. Um, there's going to be people in your life, and this has happened to every single adoptive family I know, that are going to be ultra supportive. And then there's ones that you think would be supportive that aren't. And it, it's just the reality of it. Um, does it still hurt? Yes. But you move on. Yeah. Uh, so follow your heart, follow your instincts, ask the questions, 
Um, without adoption, I would not have had the wonderful family I do have. That's, yeah, that's awesome. You shared in your bio as well that you are involved with Children of War Foundation. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about who they are and what they do? Sure. And again, a story. Great. So one of the first things when uh, my husband's from Indianapolis, he says we're on turn three. (laughs) When we first moved to L.A., when we first moved here, the first thing I do is look at medical professionals, especially for Kevin. And in L.A., it's Children's of L.A., and their craniofacial clinic. So being the good researcher I am, I look at the specialists and this one doctor, one of the things on his bio was he's, he's affiliated with Children of War Foundation. So I start looking into it and it was founded by the wife of one of the um, specialists at the craniofacial clinic. He's also teaching faculty at USC. Um, So we got to meet each other, we talked, and the initial impetus was helping children in war zones that couldn't get medical treatment. And this would have been 2013. Um, And they were working with two children uh, from Afghanistan and bringing them to the States to get medical treatment medical assistance. They sent somebody over so the children wouldn't be flying alone all that distance and connections. Well, I'd gotten to know this, uh, the founder very well. So Kevin, my husband, Gary, and I went to LAX to meet them when they landed. I was looking for this video the other day and couldn't find it. Um, Kevin made a poster and presented it to Bibi and Abdul uh, of listen to your doctor, don't be scared, and da, 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 so that just understanding what it was like, what little he understood of, they were facing medical. They were not only facing medical, they were facing the cultural, they had to be in the U.S. for a while, and so on. Since then, um, Amel went on and got her master's I'm going to misquote this, but I don't think so, from Oxford. She lives in L.A. She got her master's from Oxford. Um, So she could really run an effective organization. They sent a medical team uh, to the Children's Hospital in Kiev uh, about six months ago. Uh, They set up schools on the Syrian border that you and I would... (laughs) A maze doesn't begin to cover it. It's a school in a tent. But that's more than these kids had before. So the mission has expanded. Um, I was looking, when I was coming here, I had a Zoom conference with her and a medical student at the University of Miami who worked with Amel It turns out the dean of the medical school at University of Miami um, is on the board of Children's Children of War Foundation for the work they support um, orphanages in Haiti. So the mission has expanded and grown. Um, When we made this appointment, I reached out to her and a couple of the board members to say, well, what do you want me to say? What's, What's currently going on? 
And I know from when they were going to Ukraine, they're so busy right now that I haven't heard, and I'm not taking any offense at that. That's that's just a sign of um, of where they're at. But it's it's an incredible organization. I look at grants. One I really, really want them to go after is World of Children. World of Children funds incredible charitable efforts on behalf of children throughout the world. And I, I, this just seems to be natural. I had written it for the head of the orphanage that Peter was from. Um, and boy, her story uh, from, no, excuse me, it was the head of the orphanage Kevin was from. Uh, what she did during the war from the Russians, World War II, just, Absolutely incredible. And, and how you know, her goal was to help these children find a home, mm. find a home, you know, ideally in Russia. But if that wasn't going to happen, let me find them a home where they're going to get the medical and love they need. Um, but uh, it's I, I worked with identifying grant opportunities for them. But right now it's kind of. Um, just been moral support lately. Yeah. Wow. So how can nonprofits uh, and students within edX Global, how can they connect with Children of War Foundation? There, uh, they did start setting up, especially in the LA area, um, student groups at high schools, uh, Mirac- uh, Manhattan Beach, Miracosta, has a student group and they do fundraisers. Um, how they do fundraisers, I don't know, but um, that's how they do it. Uh, supporting when they were going to Ukraine, medical supplies. Um, if, if you know, <laughs> fund um, medical professionals travel to some of these locations. Um, they, they just sent a, uh, a, a group, I believe to Syria a couple months ago. So it's from the initial bring the children here. It's now the mission has grown to, we're going to send medical professionals, uh, to different where, where they're needed. Um, there is a newscaster in the LA area that accompanied the group, and she did a special. It's Christina P- Pasaguchi, if I'm saying her name right, from KTLA. She just left, and she's now going to the Fox affiliate in LA. Um, and she did a special on it. But I mean, quite frankly, the other way for those who believe in such is prayer. They need. It's not so much prayer for the mission; it's prayer for those children and those families. Yeah. Okay. Uh, switching <laughs> gears a little bit, you mentioned um, your work in Hawaii, and we are just curious about um, your growth as a person, as your reflection, who you were before you arrived in Hawaii, and then um, maybe what you learned about yourself along the way through your experience and who who you were when you left. It's um, a really good question. I've thought of that. Um, just this past week, 
I received a text from a colleague uh, who was the registrar at the university I was at in LA. Um, her son had just accepted a job here in Miami. <laughs> um, and could I help and so on? Um, from her words, I connected them with a realtor. They were, he was having trouble. And I reflected, but that's who I always was. She knew, to, yes, I was in Miami, but she knew to reach out to me. Um, the university in California technically no longer exists. They closed their doors August 31st. I was in the first round of layoffs. Um, without quoting figures, they were in substantial debt at that time, and the debt has only ballooned since then. So my leaving L.A., and we loved where we were, we loved the schools and so on, my leaving L.A. was, I need to find a job. And that, that search led me to University of Hawaii, West Oahu. Uh, West Oahu is on the leeward side of the island. Um, it is an undergraduate only at, the time, at this time campus. But up until the founding of UH West Oahu, there had been no four-year school on that side of the island. And that's part cultural and part um, traffic that rivals LA getting to the main campus. But it is closest to one of the most economically depressed areas in the entire state. And those were our students. I love that. Not that I didn't think I had an empathetic bone in my body before, but it, you know, students, one just reached out to me a couple weeks ago and I've been gone two years almost. Um, the work I, in the, very similar to role to what I do now, uh, except I got to teach one class and uh, it was already online. And in that class, the pandemic hits and just the issues students faced. Yes, I've got a syllabus to get through. Literally, I threw the syllabus out and revamped it to, okay, I know I need to cover these topics and, and working with students and their individual issues. Um, much more aware of what I, especially Native Hawaiians were going through and, and the differences and just an awareness. Yes, we're one country, but Hawaii is not just islands in the middle of the Pacific. It really was its own I don't want to say community, its own kingdom, truly. Um, I'm going blank on the words, but I was there my first week and they took a group of us newbies on a tour so we would understand the background of these students that we were helping. Um, what did that change in me? Not, again, not that I didn't appreciate it before, but understanding what those differences meant for those families and those students' educational journey. Um, one project I had worked on on my own time, um, how do you help um, underrepresented groups in higher education? And this one school 
We'll give them brochures. We'll do this and this and we'll give them brochures. And, oh, that's really helpful. <laughs> um, I just, it was, this particular university was so focused on services for the student but in this cultural setting, it's not just the student, it is also the family. How do we help the family? Um, great conversations with some colleagues. We actually looked, we had proposed some research and then I up and left on them of, let's look at how native Hawaiian students uh, are different or, or are the same in a given class sequence and again, that gets back to the statistics. That's really easy. Okay, what does it mean? More importantly, if this is what it means, what's the solution? How do we help them? That's the part. Again, not that I didn't know that before, but really crystallized for me in Hawaii is how do you go beyond the numbers? What the infamous in education, let's close the loop. No, it's more than close the loop. Think of that individual student and how do you help them? So um, the pandemic hit. Um, I was a state employee. It was not looking good. Um, My husband and I decided, and it was a very hard decision to leave Hawaii. Um, And I got the offer here and here I am. Wow. You have some really cool experiences. Yeah. Yeah. I do. Mm -hmm. I do. Although, again, coming full circle, it was really nice to spend the weekend just <laughs> taking it easy. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can understand that for yeah, sure. Totally, I was gonna say understood. Mm-hmm. Um, we like to end each of our podcasts by asking the same question to all of our guests. So, Sharon, what is your call to action, and what is one thing you wish you know to leave our audience with? Each student, where they are. And what can you so often? Um, oh, I heard about Jimmy and Johnny and Janie from somebody else. Meet each student where they're at, and how can you help them on their journey? Not the journey you want for them on their journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I can think of, you know. One of my capstone students, the student from West Oahu, who, who contacted me literally two weeks ago, to students from when I was in Ohio and watching them on their journey. Meet them where they're at and how can you contribute to their journey? And that's what I would say. I love that. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Sharon, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for all of your work with your students and um, sharing your stories. We really appreciate um, learning from you today. So thank you again.